So now turning to God's word, John chapter 21, verses 15 to 21. And so we're still in this after Easter period where uh, the risen Christ is, uh, is out and about and, and still doing some things with, uh, with his followers. And this will tie in a little bit to Art's message from last week as we look at uh, Peter and uh, his uh, interaction with, with Jesus. And this is the first real opportunity Peter's had to talk to Jesus since Good Friday when uh, Peter did exactly what Jesus said he would do and, and denied even knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crowed that morning. So starting now at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So between now and the end of June, we have two new preaching series lined up starting today with the first of four messages about restoration. And I'm, I'm saying they're about restoration because that is technically true, and it also sounds a lot nicer than saying that we're going to focus on failure. But that really is kind of what we're doing. Four weeks on failure, so bring your friends for a fun time. <laughs> but seriously, why would we focus on failure? And I think it is something we need to grapple with and understand in a healthy way, and the world around us is not going to teach us to do this well. In our culture, we often minimize the ways that life is hard and suffering is normal. And one of the reasons I suspect so many people are as anxious and depressed as they are is because we haven't been properly prepared for the basic reality of this and how to live through it. I mean, failure is part of life. Personal failure, living through the failure of groups and organizations, the failures of our leaders, failures of plans and projects, failures all around us. But how we respond to our failures and to the failures of the people and systems connected to us, well, that's going to play a huge role in our experience of peace and happiness. And it's also one of the ways we show ourselves to be followers of Jesus in this world, that we're set apart. Now, one of the reasons that when I read the Bible, I find it comes across as authentic and helpful is that it does not shy away from describing the failures of the major figures it speaks about. 
When you read about the people of the Bible, for the most part, you don't think, boy, they've really embellished this person and made them look way better than they probably were. For the most part, they often don't look so good. Uh, And we see so many examples of this. Like Moses very reluctantly led his people out of Egypt. He learned an awful lot of his leadership lessons the hard way. And ultimately, he wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land because of a failure right at the end. King David, at his best, a man after God's own heart. At worst, a rapist and murderer. Those are pretty hard things to hold in tension. Jonah, of course, given an assignment by God and then buys a ticket on the ship going in the opposite direction. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Solomon is given this gift of wisdom by God, but then he collected so many wives and idols from the nations around him that it corrupted him and his kingdom. And that's a tiny sampling of the Old Testament. We haven't even gotten into the New Testament. And I think it's worth, when you read through the New Testament and the stories about the people and the disciples especially, it's worth remembering that, look, if the disciples wanted to be taken really seriously as leaders of the early church, you wouldn't think they'd be so eager to talk about all their failures. But the Gospels, which draw so much of their content from those disciples, tell us that they often failed to understand what Jesus was saying, they failed to do what Jesus asked of them, they were jockeying for position to try to be Jesus' favorite, and they otherwise just really bumbled and stumbled along a lot of the time. So why would the Bible focused so much on these failures. And I think besides a desire to be truthful for those who record these things for us, I think that these examples of failure are everywhere because this is a book written by human beings under God's inspiration to human beings who are going to fail, who are going to be affected by the failures of others. And so we can learn from those examples to help us grow in wisdom, maybe avoid some of these same mistakes, but also it ensures that we don't forget about the grace of our God, who chooses flawed people to do his work in this world. So for our journey into personal failure today, it's Peter that we'll look at. And Art teed us up last Sunday a bit by talking about Peter and describing him as this man who was uh, capable of some pretty incredible highs, but also some pretty remarkable lows. He was brash. He was overconfident at times. He was sure that he was the most loyal of all the disciples, and so he would tell Jesus, you know, they may all leave you, Jesus, but I never will. Even if I have to die for you, I'll be by your side. And when Jesus was first arrested, Peter tried to do these things. He, you know, tried to defend Jesus with his sword even, which was a a brave act, even if Peter misunderstood what Jesus wanted. And he attempted to stay by Jesus, you know, following him after his arrest. He got as far as the courtyard outside of the high priest's home where Jesus was being put on trial late in the night. And so there was Peter standing around this charcoal fire you know, with the, the slaves and the servants and the guards of the high priest, waiting and wondering what was happening to Jesus. But when he was asked, was he one of Jesus' disciples? Well, he said no. And then later he denied it again. And then a third time, as Jesus said he would. And I think it's worth taking a minute just to consider the extent to which that likely broke Peter to some extent, right? He had set himself up on quite the pedestal, at least in his own mind, thinking that he was the shining example of faithfulness. He imagined that he was going to be Jesus' right-hand man in whatever kingdom Jesus was bringing about. And then he found himself abandoning his friend, who Peter was the first to recognize was God's anointed one. How do you recover from being sure 
that you are loyal and brave and faithful, only to, dis- to realize when the pressure's on, you're not any of those things. The, the timing of this series is kind of interesting because even after I'd already uh, mapped it out, I uh, traveled to, to Moncton now a couple weeks ago for uh, this, this leadership seminar as part of a training program I'm enrolled in through our Canadian Baptists of Atlantic Canada. And one of the things we spent some time on uh, was, was self-knowledge using uh, a tool called the Enneagram. And if you don't know anything about it, the Enneagram is this way of kind of sorting different personality types that people uh, exhibit. And it shows you, gives you some insight into what those types look like when they're healthy or when they're unhealthy. And so in that system, there are these nine types and they each have their own tendencies and strategies to make their way in the world. And there are a number of different tools and personality sorters like this out there. And the connection between this and Peter is that uh, I learned a little bit about my dominant type, the type one, which is extremely motivated by failure. Or rather, type ones have a very strong fear of failing or being blamed for things going wrong, which is highly motivating to them. So this is a type that's very driven to do what is right and to do things in the right way or the right way, which because we all have a right way, don't we? And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But when they're unhealthy, uh, type ones become very anxious and overbearing and overworking and sometimes really angry with anyone who doesn't seem to be doing enough to help them get things just right. And so maybe more knowledge of my oneness gives me some extra appreciation for what Peter might have been experiencing internally. Because, boy, if I were in Peter's shoes and the risen Jesus sent word for the disciples to go to Galilee to meet him there after Easter Sunday, I know I would have been kind of tempted to just go in the opposite direction, do a Jonah of my own. Because I am quite capable of dwelling on a medium-sized screw-up for months at a time. So it's kind of hard for me to imagine what it would be like to get past what had happened to Peter. Jesus is back. This is the best news. This is the most incredible thing you can imagine. But what good are you to him, having run away so soon, as soon as the going got tough, right? What are you good for after failure? And that's where this gets personal, because nobody gets through life unscathed. People get fired. They miss out on promotions. They start businesses that go under. They make bad financial decisions that cost them and their family. They lose relationships because of neglect or mistreatment. They let their bodies fall apart from bad habits or overwork. Or to be a parent, of course, as I know every day, is to be accustomed to daily failure. Because you, you struggle to be patient and kind, you try to set boundaries, you try to make decisions without any good sense of how they're going to play out. You just hope and pray that your genuine love can overshadow your shortcomings. Some of you are not where you wanted or expected to be at this point in your life. Some of you took painful detours to get to where you are. Some of you promised yourselves that you would not make certain mistakes in your life when you were younger, and then you made them anyway. All of us have moments where, like Peter, we're forced to confront the fact that we are not as good or smart or faithful or brave or loving as we imagined ourselves to be. And if you were raised in a religious environment that was high on guilt and light on grace, you might even have been told or convinced yourself that you were now too tarnished to be fully loved by God, or too broken to be able to serve God for a a good or beautiful purpose in this world. 
And this is an especially nasty lie. Because even, and even it's especially nasty because even when a person does not accept it outright, it can still kind of just seep into our souls and cause us to doubt our value. I think it's a very favorite lie of our enemy, Satan, who we call the father of lies. Right? You failed too many times. God is mad at you. God can't use you. You'll never overcome this. Just give up and accept that you're not good for much. These are demonic lies. But they're very easy to believe if we do not allow God to speak into our lives through his word, through his people, through prayer, and even through service, as we'll see is important with Peter here. So let's get back to Peter and Jesus, having just kind of try to feel through what Peter might have been going through and recognize how it connects to the way we feel about different things in our lives sometimes. <clears throat> Jesus did not think that Peter's failure disqualified him from his love, let alone from service or leadership in the church. And it seems to me that right at the top of Jesus' priority list was to move Peter from his failure into restoration. Because shortly after, he kind of gets together with everyone and uh, he'll make sure that they know it's really him. <clears throat> Jesus makes sure he gets to see Peter one-on-one, -on -one, and he has his questions that we saw in our reading from Scripture. Peter, do you love me more than these? Or to put another way, do you still think you love me more than these other guys, at least as much as these other disciples do? Are you still my number one apprentice, Peter? And Peter says, yes, you know that I do love you. He doesn't quite answer the question, notice. He doesn't say, yes, I love you more than everybody else. He says, no, I, but I do love you. And Jesus says, okay, and he doesn't say. What Jesus does not say is, okay, well, you're forgiven then, done. Great, we're all good, you know? Don't worry about denying you never knew me, it's fine. No, Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus does it again. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Then take care of my sheep. A third time, do you love me? And Peter's getting heartbroken at this point because does Jesus not believe him? Says, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus has Peter reaffirm his love three times. And then three times he adds that command, feed my lambs, look after my sheep. And I think this is always what Jesus had in mind for Peter. Peter was a leader. He was meant to take his enthusiasm, his confidence, his passion for Jesus and use it to build up the church as one of its key figures. But I don't think the old Peter could have done this the way that Jesus wanted. Right? The old Peter, who was brash, who was prideful, who was eager to play the starring role, that Peter, I think he would have enjoyed the spotlight too much. He would have liked the influence. He would have thought that, well, what Jesus really wanted from him was to take charge. That's not what Jesus said. He said, feed and look after my flock. Shepherd them. Serve them. In the example of Jesus, we see that to be a leader means to be a servant. And so before the resurrection, before Peter's failure, I don't think he understood this. But having been broken by failure, Peter was ready to hear what Jesus was saying. Jesus didn't simply forgive Peter his failure. Jesus restored Peter to the work that he was meant to do now that he was ready to do it. And going through this process of failure and restoration was, I suspect, needed for Peter to fulfill this assignment that Jesus was giving him. <clears throat> now, we also shouldn't miss that 
Jesus tells Peter what the cost of accepting this assignment is going to be. He says, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And that kind of has some general truth about life and, and aging, but Jesus is getting at a specific truth in this about what's going to happen to Peter. And the, the readers of John's gospel initially would have known that this was a prediction that Peter would be martyred. There's connections to crucifixion in, in that. And in fact, by the time John's gospel was, was circulating, Peter likely had already been executed and, and people knew that. And so when Jesus says, follow me, that's what he's inviting Peter to follow him into. Peter had once boasted that he would die for Jesus. And now Jesus warns Peter, he says, following me means that you're going to get another chance to do exactly that. All right, so that's Jesus and Peter together. So like all proper Baptist sermons, there are three points of application that I'd like to try to leave you with here. I'm going to take a little drink to get past this cough. Oops. So, the Holy Spirit may give you more, but I have three things that I'd like to send you away with from this. And the, the first is that we, we need to try to make sure our faith is not superficial. Right? See, there is a reason that G Jesus does not let Peter off easy here. I think there's a reason that Jesus asks Peter if he loves him three times that I think goes beyond the symmetry of having Peter having denied Jesus three times. I think Jesus doesn't want the quick and easy answer, right? Do you love me? Yes? Okay, all done here. I think Jesus wants Peter to really wrestle with what he is asking him. Does Peter truly want to try again to become the person that he thought he was, the person who would stand by Jesus no matter what? <clears throat> we know there's lots of lots of superficial faith in this world, right? Believe in Jesus. He'll make you healthier and wealthier. He'll give you a mansion in heaven. You know, it's all easy peasy. It's just, it's just a bonus to your life. To some people, Jesus is not a lot more than a lucky rabbit's foot or a four-leaf clover. Jesus' promise of eternal life is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a source of incredible hope. But to receive it, Jesus asks us to fully trust him with our lives, all aspects of our lives. He says we're to be born again, to die to our old life. And then Jesus gives us a new life over which he is Lord. And as Lord, it is his right to ask a lot of us, even everything of us. He will ask us to do things that we do not want to do, just like he made Peter confront his failure and face his future. But we trust that Jesus, who would give his very life for us, isn't going to ask us to do something that isn't ultimately for our good, even if it doesn't feel good if we're, while we're experiencing it. And so all that brought to mind to me are Romans 5, 3 to 5, which says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems, trials, for we know that they can help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So that's the first thing to walk away with, to not let our faith be superficial, just like Jesus didn't you know, let that happen for Peter. The second thing is, quite simply, to be gracious. Failure is inevitable. A wise, spirit-filled person can often avoid 
any particular sin at any particular moment, but nobody manages to avoid <coughs> every sin at every moment. That's true for us, that's true for everyone around us, and it's why, it's why God doesn't just suggest that we be gracious, he commands it. In Mark 6, right after teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Pretty straightforward. And I should say for a second here that failure and sin are not the same thing, right? You can fail without sinning. If I fail to complete a marathon in a certain amount of time, that's, that's not a sin, that's just not achieving a goal. At one point when I was working on this sermon, I accidentally closed my file without saving it and cut off a couple hours of my work, right? That's a mistake. Maybe it's a failure. I don't know, but it's not a, it's not a sin. But for our purposes, in Peter's situation in particular, the kinds of failures we're mostly talking about are failures to do what Jesus asks of us. And when that's the case, that kind of failure usually is sin, or at least caused by sin. But our good news, our good news says that God forgives. And it says that not only does God forgive our sins, but he helps us grow through our failures. Like Peter, they can lead to necessary transformation. God is in the business of second chances and renewal. He can restore what's broken when nothing else could, where nobody else can. And so that is a reason to extend grace to the people around you. But that's going to be more of our topic next week when Eric is back with us. But depending if your personality type is, you know, not just type ones, there's quite a few people who struggle with actually forgiving themselves. We can tell ourselves pretty awful stories about who we are in the wake of failure. So be gracious to yourself in failure. Learn the lessons you ought to learn, yes. But don't simply dwell on failure and then convince yourself that it means you're no good or you're good for nothing. You are just as loved by God immediately after the worst failure of your life as you were before that. And the character you gain if you actually grapple with failure, God helping you, well, that may just allow you to bless somebody or serve in some way that you never would have been able to before. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 is just a great couple of verses. And it says that this high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testing that we do, yet he did not sin. <clears throat> so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. There's an awfully good verse for right after some failure. All right, so we talked about not having superficial faith, about being gracious, particularly to ourselves. The third thing I would send you away with is to try to find the beauty in the life you're given. Because everyone will have failures, but we don't tend to think of ourselves as failures until we start comparing ourselves to other people. Constantly comparing yourself to other people is probably the fastest way you can trade in your peace for anxiety and hopelessness in this world. And at the end of today's scripture lesson, we see that this is exactly where Peter's thoughts go. See, Jesus, he tells Peter what it's going to look like to follow him, including the fact that he's likely going to be martyred here. And then the first thing Peter does is point to another disciple, likely, likely John, the, who often describes himself as the, the disciple Jesus loved. And he asks, well, what about him? Right? Is he going to be martyred too? Is he going to get a better deal than me? What's going on here, Jesus? 
And Peter still had some growing up to do in this. Instead of experiencing gratitude for Jesus restoring him, or instead of being kind of sobered by the commitment that he was making to follow Jesus even into his death, Peter starts to wonder how he measures up compared to someone else, or whether somebody else is going to get something that he's not. Life is not fair, and becoming a Christian does not seem to make it more fair, as far as I can tell. Some people succeed for no apparent reason. Others suffer all kinds of ways that I do not understand. But in faith, I believe that life is a gift, that there is beauty always to be found in it. Some days, for some people, it is a sincere act of worship to get out of bed. Other days, we may see with a special clarity just how blessed we are by the people and the opportunities around us. But every day, you are a person created in the image of God. Every day, you are loved by God. Every day, there is happiness and satisfaction to be found in the life that comes from God. And there are valuable things that you can give to the people around you, God helping you. And none of that changes based on the people around you and whether or not they seem like they have it easier or if they have things you wish you had or they haven't suffered some of the failures you have or for any other way that we might compare ourselves to others. Jesus does not ask you to be like somebody else or to be somebody else. What he asks of us is the same as what he asked of Peter. Follow me. So I don't know if a sermon that uses the word failure 50 times can come across as uplifting or encouraging, but I certainly hope that at the very least it wasn't depressing. Jesus' restoration of Peter is a beautiful moment. But this passage also, it just invites us to put ourselves in Peter's shoes for a moment. Because like Peter, we are all a mixture of faithfulness and failure. We have many good intentions. Sometimes our follow-through is not so good. And that can weigh on people at times. It can convince them that God is not happy with them or that God doesn't want them involved in what he's up to in the world. We will all have some low moments. And that's when we need to turn to God. Jesus went to Peter in his low moment, and he'll be there in yours if you'll let him. He'll be there to remind you that he loved you enough to give his life for you and that he delights in who you are and that he's there to forgive you and help you to step back into your complicated life a little bit wiser than you were before. To do that requires a faith that's not superficial. You have to be serious about following Jesus if you're going to be able to come back from anything. To do this requires grace. You need to be gracious with yourself when you can and allow that to grow your grace for those around you who will also have failures that can affect you. And to do this requires that we also see the beauty of our own life rather than poisoning ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. Live faithfully as only you can and find the blessings that God intends for you along the way. I think all mature Christians know that they are restored failures, much as Peter became. They don't live in the guilt and shame of what they've done, but they do know that once they've made things right in any way they can, that they can rest in God's grace. They don't forget how easy it is to make poor decisions and mess things up, which gives them compassion for others. And they also remember that God already knew this was all going to happen. God has accounted for your weakness and your failure. And this is why he's given us Jesus. So let's lean on him. Let's just have a moment of, of prayer to our God who renews and restores 
all of those who belong to him. Oh, Father God, the words of Scripture tell us some wonderful things about a future day yet to come, about this, this new age where you will restore all things, you will res- renew creation, where you will bring about what always should have been without sin, removing death and pain and, and sorrow and letting people live eternal lives of fulfillment and joy. But God, help us not to think of these wonderful things from the end of the Bible as things that won't start until then, that there'll be no sign of until then. God, you are already at work in your world. Your kingdom is already among us. And so there are signs of these things. There are breakthroughs of the kingdom into our world today and into our lives today. And some of those things are the restoration and the renewal that you bring. And so God, help everyone here just not to give up hope that even in the wake of flaws and failures and weaknesses, God, that there not only is your grace, but there is your restoration. There is the ability to move past these things, to even use them for some good that you might not have been able to, to do before you reckoned with that failure and dealt with it. And so, God, I just pray that you would offer your spirit of encouragement to everyone here today. For those who struggle to forgive themselves, help them to see themselves the way you do, with a love that shines so bright that those forgiven sins cannot be seen. God, for those who are still harboring some bitterness to others, I pray that you would open us up to have the grace that you do so that we can extend that to them and find the healing that that we regain as well as restoration of relationships and deepening of them with others. So God, I pray that you would allow us to just go out into this world having made peace with being restored failures, fully and utterly loved by you, recognizing how easy it is to to fall short and just ready to, to live in that space, relying on you as much as we can each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.